Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest today is a frequent visitor back by the woodpile, particularly on our Amplifying the Muted Voices of Cuba series. Alberto de la Cruz is the managing editor of babalublog.com, a news site that puts an emphasis on keeping watch on the human rights abuses in Cuba, in addition to highlighting other stories neglected or misrepresented by the mainstream media. Today, Mr. Cruz is going to give us a history lesson on the sinking of the 13th of March tugboat, the Elian Gonzalez saga, the current relationship between the leaders of Black Lives Matter and the oppressive and often racist regimes of Cuba and Venezuela, and a few other topics. But first, we talk about what was the reaction of some on the American left when Cuban and Puerto Rican Americans refused to vote for who they were told to vote for in the 2020 election. As we record this, we've just had an election. It's, it's still a little bit up in the air about who has actually won as president. And um, a lot of anger and, I guess, hatred and even racism was directed at the Cuban exile community in Miami and, I guess, elsewhere as well. And I think even the, the Puerto Ricans got a little bit of that quote-unquote love from the far left because they, in bigger numbers, voted for Trump. So, first of all, explain why more Cuban exiles or people of Cuban descent voted for Trump over Biden. I think the main issue that as Cuban Americans and, and uh, you know, myself, the son of Cuban exiles, and a lot of us is the, the main issue we've been having with, with the Democrat Party has been its lurch to the left. Watching voices become prominent in the party, such as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, and Bernie Sanders, and all this talk of socialism, you know, that doesn't sell among Cuban Americans. I've had Democrats and liberals come to me and say, you know, you know, Biden isn't a socialist. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure he's not a socialist, but I don't think he has the power or, or the desire to to stand up to the socialists that are taking over his party. I think that was the, the main wedge uh, or the main break that pushed the Cuban-American community uh, over to the Trump side. It wasn't just that, that Biden was a Democrat. It was that there's... Uh, Democrats that support socialism, that talk about socialism like it's like it's something good and and want to impose the Green New Deal and, and want to free health care and free education. Those those people are, are getting more powerful and getting louder and not being controlled. And and we just that doesn't play here. Again, just pretend as if someone listening to this doesn't understand why socialism is a bad thing and why Cuban-Americans would in particular be so adverse to that idea. Well, there's a hundred million reasons why socialism uh, (laughs) is not good. And those are a hundred million people that were killed, uh, murdered by socialism all over the world, from the Soviet Union to China, to Cuba, to Cambodia. Every place socialism has has been tried has ended in destruction, 
uh, economic destruction, human destruction, infrastructure destruction. It's never played well. And they keep coming back with, the, well, you know, that wasn't real socialism. Mm-hmm. But the truth of the matter is, every time you try socialism, that's the result you get. For us Cubans, one thing that people kind of uh, aren't aware of or, or maybe forgot, but Fidel Castro, well into his first year as dictator in Cuba, kept swearing he wasn't a socialist and he wasn't a communist. And he kept promising there were going to be elections. And, you know, 61 years later, they're still waiting for those elections. It, it, it wasn't like Cubans chose chose Fidel Castro because he came in with socialist policies. He went around saying, you know, the revolution is not red. The revolution is as green as the palm trees. We're not communists. And after he gained the power and after he executed uh, or imprisoned all his political opponents, then he said, I'm socialist and I'm a Marxist. And we've been through that. We've seen it. We've seen the people come in and say, no, we're not socialists. This is not about socialism. This is about giving you more rights and this is about giving you more stuff and this is about the government doing good things and it turns into a dictatorship that's not to say we we feel that's you know that's going to happen now if uh, under a biden presidency but you know we don't even want to get one inch closer to it mm-hmm. we, we want to avoid it completely because it's not something that happens from one day to the next it's it's a slow you know, relatively slow process that happens little by little. And by the time, you know, the, the old adage of the, of the frog in a boiling pot of water, by the time you realize the water's boiling, it's too late, you're cooked. Mm-hmm. So that's why for Cubans who've seen their country destroyed, who've seen a, a country that was once self-sufficient, that could produce its own food, that had a strong economy, that had a, the Cuban peso was on par with the American dollar, uh, you know, more, Cubans vacationed in, in the United States and Americans vacationed in Cuba. We, we had our political issues and, and there were problems in Cuba, but it, it wasn't socialism mm-hmm. and it wasn't destroying the entire country. And my family, which was a poor family that worked hard for the little that they had to, to eke out a middle-class existence, had everything stolen from them. And uh, I, I love it when you know, randos on, on Twitter and social media come to me and says, oh, you're only mad because they they took your your sugar plantation. Like, what sugar plantation? My <laughs> parents lived in a two-bedroom house. Thank you, Mr. President, for meeting with us today, for your friendship, and for standing with us, the Cuban people, who wants to be free to decide our own destiny. Thank you, Mr. President, also for your historic actions to support democracy in Cuba and to pressure the cruel communist dictatorship. So with President Trump, uh, of course, most people that don't like him, they see all his flaws, but how has he been towards uh, the Cuban exile community, the political dissidents, people that have suffered under the communist regime in Cuba? Well, President Trump has had success with the Cuban American uh, and the Hispanic, and pretty much I think this this also extends into the whole Hispanic American community. But with the Cuban American community, he had success because of his strong policy towards the Castro dictatorship and and 
not kowtowing to them, not pursuing a policy that we had under the previous administration of unilateral concessions where we give everything away and they give us absolutely nothing in return. Mm -hmm. He instituted a tough policy on, on the Castro regime, and that was a positive that gained him a lot of support in the Cuban-American community. But uh, there's another side to that that they don't want to talk about, or at least the media doesn't want to talk about, and the left doesn't want to talk about, is Trump's uh, campaign message was very strong on economic growth, on freedom, on liberty, on being able to, to realize the American dream. And that's something that for Cubans... Cuban Americans and for all Hispanics as part of, you know, part of our Hispanic culture is that, you know, culture to work hard, you know, to come and, uh, and, and the only thing you ask for is an opportunity. You don't ask for, uh, for a free ride. You don't ask for to be taken care of. All you ask for is give me the opportunity to take care of myself, which is very popular among Hispanic communities. And that's why I think you saw Puerto Ricans break towards him uh, in larger numbers. You saw that uh, a lot of uh, the Hispanic community in Texas and, and Arizona, you saw big uh, increases in his support there because of, I think, because of that core message. Because socialism is not going to be a big message for Puerto Ricans and, and Mexican-Americans, but um, the message of freedom and and hard work gets you the American dream, and I'm going to make things easier for you to start your own business and and to be successful and to give a better life to your children. That message plays very well among the Hispanic community because of our, even though Hispanics are very different and each, you know, no two are alike uh, as far as the nations they're from, that we do share some core values, and that's one of them. So now let's talk about the backlash, the the criticism that, uh, you all down there because you didn't stay in your place or you didn't vote how you were told to vote. What did that look like? Well, I was uh, I was shocked. Uh, I was shocked to learn that I'm a white supremacist. <laughs> I'm a white supremacist. Uh, I was also shocked to learn that you know my dream is to be to be white, but that the white people are never going to accept me as white. Uh, that was the next one coming down. It's what we've been getting. For decades, uh, you know, it's just now it's louder. And the things they used to whisper behind our backs, they're they're saying out loud right now. It, it's it's kind of reminiscent of the whole Elian Gonzalez uh, saga uh, when Clinton took Elian and and basically you know gut punched the Cuban American community. All of a sudden, people that we thought were our allies, that we thought were our friends, that we thought were people who supported our community, that uh, all of a sudden they felt safe to to say out loud what they really thought about Cuban Americans. Hmm. You know, I don't think the Biden win because I think if Biden would have lost, they still would have said all the nasty things they've said. In my experience, I was born in this country. I was raised in Miami. Uh, I didn't realize, you know, I was a minority and there's a great article out there that, about it, but I didn't realize I was a, a quote unquote minority until I left Miami for the first time when I was uh, 18 or 19 years old. Because you're not brought up that way. You're not brought up thinking you're a minority. And we were brought up, I uh, grew up in Little Havana, where the majority of my neighbors were all Cuban-Americans. The majority of the businesses were owned by Cuban-Americans. It, it sort of everybody coexisted and everybody, you know, there wasn't really a, a, a racial uh, thing going on, uh, at least that I could notice growing up. And it wasn't until I got out that I realized it. You know, have I been subjected or, or have I experienced 
bigotry and racism? Of course I have. I've traveled and, and I've seen it, but I could pretty much tell you the nastiest, most vitriolic racism I've ever experienced has, has been from people on, on the left. So it, it really doesn't come as a surprise. Uh, now, these criticisms and the, the racist uh, comments about y'all, did this come from prominent Democrats or it was just your run-of-the-mill trolls on the Internet? And was any of this condemned by uh, like Democratic leadership that you're aware of? I haven't seen any condemnation uh, by Democratic leadership. Uh, you know, maybe it's out there, but I haven't I haven't seen any of them stand up and say, hey, you know, you can't just attack people because you have a political disagreement with them. But then again, for the past four years, nobody in the Democratic uh, leadership has really stepped up to to say, you know, everybody who votes for Trump is is not necessarily a white supremacist Nazi. <laughs> it, it really is. Like I've said in the past, the main racism I've ever seen has always has come from the left. And I'm talking about, you know, from just somebody who's a liberal to to I had a, a very prominent and, and wealthy Democrat fundraiser who, who basically treated me like, who do I think I am? I'm, I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget his, his term, you Cubans. You know, and I'm like, what do you mean you Cubans? I'm an American. I vote however I want. You don't tell me how to vote. And I get it. I, just the other day, I had uh, someone on Twitter telling me that I, I should I should be a Democrat because it, you know the Cuban Adjustment Act was was signed by a Democrat. Like that makes any difference? Like something that happened 40, 50 years ago should determine my party now. Because if that's the case, then why are they Democrats? Uh, Democrats are the party of the KKK. Right. Slave master party. Brothers and sisters, comrades and friends. I give to you the hero of the struggle of people throughout the world, Commandante Fidel Castro. Also, as we speak, there's still a, I think a senatorial race going on in Georgia. And one of the guys who's running as a Democrat is uh, Raphael Warnock or Warnock. And uh, it's come up that he was a big fan of a guy who killed probably many of your family members and friends, Fidel Castro. Can you talk about that uh, event that happened back in the mid-90s? From what I've read, he was a junior pastor at the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem uh, when Fidel Castro uh, visited in 95 and was met with much love and affection as the crowd gathered there at the church screamed, uh, Fidel, Fidel, Fidel. He was a junior pastor. He wasn't, from what I could tell, he wasn't on the dais when Fidel was there, but he was part of the church. Uh, he stayed at that church, and uh, he has in the past spoken about how wonderful socialism is and how Jesus was a socialist, how Christianity is socialism. So it's funny because I read a PolitiFact which has become a caricature. But uh, PolitiFact said it was uh, mostly untrue that he had anything to do with Fidel Castro and then admits that he was a junior pastor there, admits he's talking about socialism. But since his campaign and his spokespeople have not come out and said they were there, they also haven't denied it that he was there. But since they haven't said he was there, they classified that as mostly untrue. But the fact that he hasn't come out and said, I was not there, I had nothing to do with that. All it said was he had nothing to do with 
who gets to speak at the church. He's part of that faction of, of Christianity, I guess that falls into that uh, sort of similar to liberation theology, mm-hmm. and, you know, believes the government is the one that controls it, uh, should control everything. And so he's problematic. Uh, he's definitely problematic. And I see no reason to believe he would not be sympathetic to socialist policies uh, when it comes time to vote in the Senate. Well, in the at least in the far left uh, black community, and like you mentioned, the liberation theology, that branch, uh, there has been a fascination with Castro. I mean, of course, one of the bigger events was back in 1961 when Castro uh, came and stayed in Harlem. So while we're talking about the man, what was Fidel Castro's record on race? How did he treat black folks in his own country? He treated them like slaves. Hmm. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. If you look at the, you know, the people who rule Cuba, the Castro family, and the inner circle, they're all lily white, direct descendants of Spanish colonists. Fidel Castro's father was a soldier in the Spanish army during Cuba's war of liberation. You know, blacks in, in Cuba, just this morning I posted an article on a race equality activist in Cuba who's being threatened with being thrown in jail if he keeps criticizing the Castro regime for its systemic racism. You know, Fidel Castro once said about art, about the arts in Cuba, within the revolution, everything, outside the revolution, nothing, it comes down the same. If, if you're black and you're willing to tout the, the party line, they allow you to, to exist without being harassed. But you're not going to hold any high position. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to amount to much. There'll, there'll be a few that they'll allow to, to show a face, but the ones who re- you'll never have your hand on an actual lever of power in Cuba, as long as the Castro's are there, if you're, if you're an Afro-Cuban. And Cuba's, you know, like all countries, it had, there was always some racial issues before Castro, but after Castro, it just became institutionalized. The first thing I think is that we actually do have an ideological frame. Um, myself and Alicia in particular are trained organizers. Um, we uh, are trained Marxists. Um, we are uh, super uh, versed um, on sort of ideological theories. Well, on that subject, let's talk about Black Lives Matter. So the founders, uh, there's Patrice Cullors, I guess is how you say her name, and there's another one, Alicia Garza, and they both claim to be trained Marxists. That's their words, not mine. In spite of what you just said about how poorly black folks are treated in Cuba, the leaders of Black Lives Matter, the organization, not the rank and file, but they have a relationship, from what I understand, with the leaders of um, communist Cuba and also Venezuela. Can you expound more on that? Here's the thing. Uh, Communists will say anything and almost do anything to help their cause and and to give them more power. Uh, You just had China, communist China, condemn the U.S. for racism against African-Americans. When in communist China, black people are are banned from entering a McDonald's. When Uyghurs are being uh, rounded up and put into concentration camps. Muslim Uyghurs. But anything the Cuban regime sees as an opening to do damage to America and to the American way of life, they will take advantage of it. And that's the the part that I kind of try to highlight on Babalu oftentimes is there's so many black 
opposition leaders that are suffering incredible repression. You have seen Ponte Contreras sitting in, in, in prison, uh, going blind, uh, getting sicker every single day, Afro-Cuban man. And you don't see any, you know, BLM standing up for him. Amnesty International has, has classified him a prisoner of conscience. Yet you don't see black leaders here in the U.S. speaking out for him. So it sort of works both ways. They use each other. The BLM founders or BLM people may know that Cuba is racist, but Cuba can be used to further their agenda. So they use it and it's vice versa. Black Lives Matter wouldn't be able to do anything, any of the protests, any of the stuff that they're doing here in the U.S. that they have the right to do and the constitutional right to do, and I fully support their right to do it. They wouldn't be able to do any of those protests in Cuba, they would immediately be arrested, beaten up, thrown in prison, or and even killed. Cuba would never allow BLM to do what they do in the U.S. and Cuba, but they encourage them to do it in the U.S. because they feel it does harm to the U.S. It's sort of a symbiotic and evil but symbiotic relationship that they have. It reminds me of a George Kennan in his famous long telegram. He mentioned that he was talking about the Soviet Union, but... Uh, how that they are basically kind of parasites on disease tissue. And what he meant was any free society uh, that was you know generally good always is going to have a, a few problems. And that's what the communists and Marxists tend to find, and they agitate it, make it worse than it was, uh, because it helps strengthen them by weakening their, their enemy. Not to go back to the topic we were on before, but that's sort of kind of explains why the left is at odds with the Hispanic community, especially with Cuban Americans, because that message of victimhood, that message of you need someone to take care of you, to protect you, to give you stuff, because you can't make it on your own, that message just, it doesn't register with Cuban Americans and most Hispanics. You know, they, they use that message because that's how, you know, the message that you're a victim, the message that, that you can't do it on your own because you're being held down is is a message to create, you know, to make people unhappy, to make people to mobilize and, and create rifts and create tension and create friction. And that message just doesn't play among most Hispanics. Because it's, you know, they, they've come here, they've worked hard. I go, wait a second, you know, I was, I was poor in my country. I came to the U.S. and within a couple of years, I had a, you know, I had a car, I had a big screen. You know, I couldn't have done any of these things in my country because I don't have the opportunities there. Because I come from a low caste or, or you know, the village I was in, there was, there was nothing going on and I couldn't travel. I would get kicked out of a big city if I went there. But I came here to the United States and I was able to, to eke out a, or, or establish a, a decent life for my family and I. And that's why that victimhood message is, is really has, they have difficulty with that message among the Cuban American and Hispanic community. And don't you think also that because on the left, there tends to be this tendency to create cults of personality out of the leadership uh, that we're supposed to follow them no matter what. And of course, Latin America's had their fill of cults of personality. Yeah, I mean, that's always, um, and it's very inherent with the left is there's a lot of talk of purity tests and, and purity tests among conservatives and, and things of that nature. But the ultimate purity test is on the left because the left accepts no, no deviation from the party line, zero deviation from the party line. You, you can't be, for instance, pro-life 
and a Democrat. Their platform says you have no home here if you're not pro-abortion. This is not, you know, get out. So you can be a Marxist, you know, down the line, but you're pro-life and they don't want you. They demand, and I think that's the main thing with the left, is that they demand total submission and total allegiance to, you know, to them or they will eliminate you. And that's why they're willing to do anything. And I, and I was talking about this yesterday with somebody. They, they don't try to win you over with this is how good things could be. They try to win you over with this is how bad it's going to be if you don't come with me. Mm-hmm. And this is how you're going to suffer. And it's sort of a negative, uh, a negative thing. But I think psychology has plenty of psychology textbooks have been written on how humans react more to negative stimulation than they do to positive stimulation. Today marks the anniversary of the horrific 13th of March tugboat massacre in which 41 Cubans lost their lives at the hands of the Coast Guard, risking their lives to escape from the brutal oppression of the Castro tyranny. The victims and the survivors of that attack 16 years ago symbolized the ongoing struggle of the Cuban people to be free. This anniversary serves to remind the world that the same callous dictatorship that rammed the small tugboat and turned water cannons on innocent Cuban men, women, and children so that they could fall and drown to death is the same dictatorship in power today. I want to talk now about a couple of historical incidences that are fairly recent that if folks are trying to understand Cuban Americans, uh, what color is their like, historical understanding? So we're just going to talk about a couple. Uh, the first one was the DeMarzo tugboat massacre. Can you tell us about that? The Teresa de Marzo, 13th of March, was the name of the tugboat. This was a tugboat that a group of Cubans trying to escape Cuba, they commandeered it. It was 50-something of them, men, women, children, including an infant, they commandeered the ship in the night and they pointed it north towards the U.S. It was met by the patrol, Cuban patrol, and they sent out several ships to, to block it. And being a tugboat, it can pretty much ram through the ships. So what they did was these, um, these patrol boats had water cannons and they just started shooting the water cannons at the tugboat now as you know a tugboat doesn't really have a cabin as yeah you know where people can hide you pretty much have that little cockpit and and not much else for you to be in there those 50 some odd people so they started shooting the majority of them i think only three or four of them survived uh, the rest were drowned including children and, and and the infant that were drowned there and absolutely nothing happened there was no uh, public outcry from the UN or from the US at the time, you know, a tepid statement from the Clinton administration, State Department. But it was basically they murdered uh, these children as the people were screaming, uh, as the ones that did survive said that they were screaming and saying, fine, we give up, we give up, we'll go back. As uh, they just kept shooting the cannons until they sunk the boat. They basically filled the tugboat up with water until it sank. So having said that, you mentioned the Clinton administration. A few years later, 
in spite of obviously what the Castro government uh, can do and did, you have this incident with a little boy, another attempt for uh, Cubans trying to escape Cuba, a child by the name of Elian Gonzalez and his mother. Can you tell us about that? Because I, I will say this, like I've met more Cuban Americans that have said that incident is what woke them up to politics and to maybe push them yeah. towards activism. I mean, I, so Elian Gonzalez was a small boy that his mother, along with a group of other people, other Cubans, decided to, to leave Cuba, to escape Cuba on a raft and, and come to the United States. Uh, she was divorced from his father and the father knew that she was leaving on a raft and was well aware that she was taking his son. And as a matter of fact, he, from accounts that I have heard, he approved of it and had even said after uh, he arrived, had told the family members here in the U.S. that, you know, he was making plans to join them soon. Uh, what ended up happening on that journey uh, was everyone that was on those rafts drowned, did not survive. The only one that survived was Elian. He was found by himself in an inner tube uh, floating out in the Florida Straits by some fishermen. They brought him in. Five-year-old boy survives, only survivor, lost his mother, and became a media sensation. Everybody was talking about it. And that bothered Fidel Castro. That bothered Fidel Castro that this kid was getting all of this attention. And that attention meant people were thinking, wow, why would a mother risk her life to get her child out of Cuba? And he didn't like that. So after he had arrived and all the media was at the house and everybody, and I'm sure a lot of people saw it, and the father had already called the relatives here in the U.S. and said that he would, you know, he would be joining them soon. After all of that happened, the Cuban government, Cuban state security, picked up the father and told them, you're going to ask for the kid back. And the father had no choice but, but to say that. And that's how the, the battle began. Now, you have to keep in mind uh, Bill Clinton did not have a good relationship uh, or a good experience with Cuban Cuban refugees. From accounts I have read, he always felt that he lost re-election as governor of Arkansas because of the riots that happened in Arkansas during the Mariel boat lift. Uh, all the Cubans, since Fidel Castro had emptied out his uh, the prisons in Cuba and sent them over to the U.S., a lot of those uh, were put into prisons here until they could sort things out. And they rioted in, in that Arkansas prison, and it was a big mess. It made Clinton look bad, and uh, he ended up losing the election. I, I have no doubt that Fidel Castro basically told Bill Clinton, I'm going to open up the floodgates again, and I'm, I'm going to empty out my prisons again mm -hmm. into the U.S. if you don't, you don't send that child back. Because there, there really was no other reason for the U.S. to kowtow to, to the demands of, of the uh, Cuban dictatorship. No one can honestly say that, you know, that child had a better life in Cuba than he had here with his loving family. Yes, it's the father's son, but the father was obviously coerced. He was obviously coerced and you can see it in his body language. Uh, later on, they did a 60 minutes interview. People who were involved in the interview were saying how everything was controlled by, by the Cuban handlers that came with them when they came here to the U.S. And they control what they can say, what they can speak. They, it made them stop. Don't say that. Say it this way. They were completely controlled. Mm -hmm. And all of that should have been 
obvious. And I think there was a, a nun that was involved that was actually on the side of the father that came out, uh, which was the one who said, uh, who came out and said, you know, when I saw that, I realized this was, you know, this this isn't right. right. <laughs> this kid should not go back to Cuba. So while they were they were in negotiations and they were going to court and trying to get custody of the child, and before the court uh, was able to to issue a, a ruling on it on whether the child had a right to stay and have a hearing, uh, Janet Reno, under instructions, obviously from uh, Attorney General Janet Reno, under instructions from the White House, sent in uh, basically stormtroopers, sent in armed men with assault rifles into the house, where his uncle's house, his great uncle's house, where he was staying, and they took the child by force. You know, that's that famous picture of the soldier pointing the gun at Elion and uh, as he's being held by a gentleman who actually had, you know, who was staying at the house who had actually found him in the ocean. Wow. Yeah. Elian Gonzalez was uh, for me and, and for many of us, uh, it was, you know, it was a watershed moment. It was that, that moment where, you know, for many years we lived here in Miami and, you know, we knew there was another world outside of Miami, but, you know, we were happy here in Miami and, Nobody messed with us. We didn't mess with anybody. You know, we had a good thing going. And then Elian Gonzalez happened and the Clinton administration did the unthinkable and kidnapped the kid and sent them back to, to a life of, of, you know, being a pawn. It really was a moment where we kind of realized that we don't live in isolation. We don't, you know, we don't have our own little world here that nobody can touch us. And for me, it was twofold. It was that realization that, that that we aren't untouchable and also the realization that those people that, you know, we used to uh, invite to our house for, for Noche Buena, the Christmas Eve, traditional Christmas Eve dinner where we roast a pig and the Cubans do. And that we had, you know, called honorary Cubans that would drink Cuban coffee with us and, and would, uh, you know, eat Cuban pastries with us and speak Spanish and all that. And you know, the moment they saw the opportunity to to step on us, they did. And so, Elian Gonzalez today, uh, what what's known about him? I, I know that for a while people thought he was in the army. Well, everybody's in the army. In, well, like, in, in Cuba, you have no choice. <laughs> of course, you know, as soon as he arrived uh, back in in Cuba with the father, he was used as a as a pawn. And you know, Fidel bring him up, sit him on his lap, and he, he was used as a political pawn. And and they groomed him. Uh, he's he's basically a, a robot now for the regime. He just repeats what he's told to repeat. And the funny thing is, is you know, you see the videos of him with his cousin and with the family and all, you know, all the smiles and stuff. And now he says that it was a horrible experience that that he was rescued from those evil people. And um, it's really sad when when you look at it. But by the same token, he's got no other choice right. because as long as he's in Cuba, he says anything else. You know, whatever little privilege he has or whatever little freedom he has is gone. He will disappear. If he comes out and says, this was horrible, I should have stayed in the United States, you will never see Elian Gonzalez again. If you're wanting to learn more about Cuba's history, you should definitely check out our other conversations with Alberto de la Cruz. On In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, episodes 186, 168, 153, and 139. Also, back on episode 202, 
We visited with Marcel Felipe, founder of the Inspire America Foundation and the chairman of the American Museum of the Cuban Diaspora in Miami, Florida. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. <laughs>